Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Alrighty, guys, welcome back to the show, the MVM show. It's Titus, your host here today, and I have some guests that I think you guys are really going to enjoy. I know I'm excited to talk to, especially for you California folks. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. We have on today Kevin. He was on a podcast earlier, had a really great conversation. It was really hard to close that episode down. And then today we have Mark Henley. And just real quick, I want to go over... uh, a little bit of background of him, if you guys don't know who he is. He is, uh, Mark Henley has been a lobbyist on behalf of California Waterfowl Association for the last 20 years. In this capacity, he advocates for duck hunters and wetland conservationists at the state capitol and in Washington, D.C. He also works with the California Fish and Game Commission on waterfowl seasons and bag limit regulations, which I'm looking forward to go over with, as well as the Department of Fish and Wildlife and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service on their public hunt programs. Uh, Mark also helped sponsor and pass into law state legislation that created the SHARE program to increase public hunting opportunities on private land, make hunting a priority use of state wildlife areas, increase funding for state waterfowl habitat programs, and require the Department of Fish and Wildlife to solicit hunter input on waterfowl hunting programs for its lands. So he's done, done a ton of work. He's also helped to liberalize season and bag limits for geese, increase youth hunting opportunities, which is very important. Also, we talk about the young people a lot on here, and we really want, I mean, they're the next generation, so it's very important. And most recently, he's created a special veterans hunt for Waterfowl in California, and I will say a huge thank you for that because I had an incredible hunt last year on the vet hunt. Uh, he has hunted the public wildlife areas and refuges since the mid-1990s, 
and he enjoys spending time in the marsh with his four kids and labs. Mark Henley, thank you for coming on the show today. Glad to be here. And yeah, I have the best job in the world. I'm a lucky guy. Um, and I wanted to put a plug in for your videos. I've watched a lot of your videos, Titus, and it's great that you're showcasing, you know, the public hunting opportunities here in California. It really shows, I mean, how good it can be, as you guys know, if you put in the time and effort. So uh, appreciate that. Thank you. I appreciate that. And one of the things that there's a, there's so much we want to cover today, so I'll try to get right into it and let Mark and and Kevin do the talking. Obviously, Mark more so just for the, he's the guest, but I think Kevin. I don't know how long have you guys known each other, Kevin. Um, I'd say it's probably about two years, maybe a little over two years, Mark. Yep. And you've been a great participant on both our public lands hunters committee as well as our regulations committee. So a lot of, a lot of really good input from you there, which we appreciate. I mean, when we come up with our recommendations to us fish and wildlife service or fishing game as fish and wildlife as to how to run their programs or what the regulations you know should be, we want to make sure that reflects what the hunters want. And you've been great at, you know, portraying that and getting out there uh, the best ways that we can try to maximize hunter opportunity to serve the interests of our members. So it's been good. Yeah. And you know, I want to tell both of you, thank you for all the efforts that you guys put in. And uh, I had to get a little kick in the pants uh, from Kevin because I had, I didn't realize it, but my Cal waterfowl Membership had expired. I thought it was not expired till the end of this year, and it, I You're went not and looked. The first. <laughs> I went and looked, and it was done. I was like, "You got to be kidding me!" So I felt kind of like goofball, but anyways, got that all updated and good to go. And by the way, guys, all you listeners out there that are from California, and and it just doesn't go for California people, whatever state you guys are in, because I know you listen all over, you know, you, the, the United States and outside of that, honestly. But don't forget to support your state. Uh, representatives that are in the waterfowl department, not to also, you know, Delta uh, Waterfowl and also um, Ducks Unlimited, but just checking that stuff because, I mean, you guys like duck hunting just as much as we do. We're passionate about it and support these. I mean, these are, someone's got to do the work and it's the guys like you guys, you know, Mark here today and Kevin. So want to say thank you for that, but let's get going. I don't want to be the one talking here. But well, I don't, and let me say too that, that both Delta and DU are really good partners of ours. So I would second what you just said. You know, everybody, if you're a duck hunter in California, you should be supporting all three groups. They yep. all do really good work. Yep. yep. I 100% agree. So uh, are you okay starting with uh, the re- the waterfowl 20 or 21 22 waterfowl regs and state legislation? You want to start there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of the regulations, um, they're pretty much status quo as last year. Um, the good thing is we did get the Fish and Game Commission to agree to hunt, allow hunting all the way again until January 31st. We've been asking for that as a permanent change to make sure that we get as much hunting in January as possible. So I think I think that would be the one, you know, thing to point out. Uh, most hunters, is, you know. Uh, want to hunt as late as possible, particularly if you're in the balance of state zone, you know, the Southern San Joaquin or the Southern California zones of California. So I think this now going forward will be 
a permanent change and we'll uh, be able to get as many days in January as possible. So that's, that's very welcome. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's huge. I mean, this year, I think it adds one day cause that would be Monday, I believe, but I know sometimes yep. it adds three or four days, you know, just obviously depending Correct. on what day it is. So last year, or it wasn't last year, but the year before we went to the end of the month, and I believe it was a Thursday that was the last day, correct? Yeah, yeah. And if you were able to get out on a public refuge on that added Wednesday, that extra Wednesday then that we got, um, I mean, of course, it depends on the refuge. Most guys do really good. There was a good north wind that day, mm. and, you know, the averages were very high. So we were really pleased to to see that. And um, I think the commission recognizes that if they want to keep hunters in the game and keep them supporting conservation, you've got to provide as much opportunity as possible. We're fortunate in the Pacific Flyway. We have some of the most liberal seasons and bag limits of you know any flyway. Um, but it's nice to, again, be able to hunt as late as possible because – I mean, if you look at the harvest statistics, I mean, yeah, we have our first week where our hunting is typically very good, but really the best hunting in California now is probably mid-December on. And the later you can hunt in January, the better, uh, I think, from most people's perspectives. So, again, it's a, a welcome change to the regulations. Yeah. What about now uh, as far – I mean, I know this. I'm just asking you these questions because I read it all up on it already, but – what about uh, bag limits and stuff this year? Is there any anything changes there? So there won't be any changes to the bag limits. Um, we did have quite the spirited debate when we, you know, made our recommendation. California Waterfowl, we make a recommendation to the Fish and Game Commission every year. We do that in um, consultation with Department of Fish and Wildlife. Um, but there were several folks that were very on our regulations committee that were very concerned about the plight of our local mallards. So, I mean, as anybody that's been hunting the last 20 years knows that the mallard population is down. Our breeding population is significantly below its long-term average. We had, of course, last summer up at the Klamath Refuges, a big die-off of many of our molting mallards and breeding mallards up there from avian botulism. You know, that killed thousands of them. Mm. And then we're going into, frankly, a, a breeding season here that is very uncertain. We're, we're in drought again. There's probably going to be very poor nesting and brood water conditions. So we did have some folks that wanted to do something about that. Initially, um, the recommendation was to reduce then the bag limit um, down to five uh, drakes and one hen. Um, but our board, after getting input from quite a few of our members and other hunters, um, basically voted to delay that uh, change. And in the meanwhile, what we're going to try to do is convene a meeting with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Fish and Wildlife, State Fish and Wildlife, and some waterfowl biologists and experts to really kind of go into what is the problem with our local mallard population? Why is it declining and what should we do about that? Um, you know, personally, my view is it's a habitat-based issue. We just do not have the nesting cover, particularly in the Sacramento Valley that we used to have because of clean farming practices mm -hmm. and other changes on the landscape. And then now, you know, the state, they want to um, count every you know molecule of water that you put out on the landscape. There's a lot of restrictions on 
you know, using water in California. So we just don't have the brood water either that we once had. So what we really, in my view, need to do is, is concentrate on getting better, uh, higher quality habitat out on the landscape. That's what's going to help reverse that decline. Now, do I think we'll ever get back to where we were in the late 90s when the mallard populations were through the roof? I don't know because, you know, there may have been changes on the landscape that, frankly, we can never fully reverse. But I do think we can definitely increase the population here locally. And and that's important for the California hunter. I mean, about two-thirds of the, the mallards that we shoot in California actually were bred here. So if we really want to increase our, our hunter opportunity for mallards and folks want to target mallards, you got to provide the right breeding habitat here in our state. And so that's what CWA is focused on. Wow. Well, okay, so you talked about two-thirds of the mallards uh, that are shot in California are basically locals. But kind of going back to um, – I actually read something that was saying, I think it was through Delta Waterfowl, that uh, what's affecting – what's a, like as far as – I don't want to jump ahead to the Klamath Basin deal, but you're talking about habitat and all that stuff. So my question is – and I, I, this is probably a stupid question, but won't the birds find – somewhere else depending on where it's at i mean i know this is kind of their breeding grounds but like say for instance mm-hmm. they can't use lower klamath or whatever and that's a huge place i've always heard that since for a long time won't they yeah. just find another location or are you saying they just won't even lay their eggs i mean how does that cut down on the overall population or is it more of a predator situation yeah i mean there's a couple things going on there i mean Waterfowl, particularly mallards, uh, the hen mallards have a very high nest fidelity issue going to where they want to come back and breed where they have been breeding year in and year out. Mm. So they are very focused on certain places. And typically it's where they hatched out originally. That's where they go back to. Um, So, you know, then having to send them somewhere else um, doesn't always work in, in that way. The other thing is, you know, the farther, again, they, so you could say, well, they could fly up to, say, Washington or mm-hmm. Canada to go up there. But the farther they have to fly, that it tends to be that they are less productive. They have to expend more energy. There's more opportunity for them to get clobbered by predators or to mm-hmm. lose the nest. And so, yeah, it makes it harder. And the same is true with pintail. We see this in, you know, the prairies when, on years where there's drought and the pintail are forced to fly to the northern part of the prairies or even up into Alaska, they're just less productive. So the more stress you put on, you know, breeding birds, it, it cuts down on their production. Gotcha. Um, but what we did have up in the Klamath Basin was a direct then die-off of birds, many of whom had bred down in the Sacramento Valley or the Central Valley of California say, in the rice fields down there or in the Sassoon Marsh, and then they went up to Klamath to molt. And, you know, that's during a time period where, you know, frankly, they are at risk to predators because they can't fly. But um, to have that big of a die-off during molting is just something, from our view, that's unacceptable. And it, it just, we can't sustain that over year, you know, year in and year out. I mean, if we keep going this direction, it's, 
definitely is going to have a long-term impact on our population. So of all the places in California for molting, the Klamath Basin is by far the most important. And again, if that is not kept whole, it's going to bring long-term harm to our local waterfowl population here. So we think that's a priority for getting fixed. And mm-hmm. We can talk about it later, what we're trying to do then okay. to reverse that water situation up in the Klamath Basin. Okay. So so on the regulations still, the, the, the bag limits and stuff, um, uh, I, I know a lot of people would like to hear, I mean, and that's just because some people haven't read. I've read it, but I'd like to hear it too, is um, can we talk about the pintail limit remaining at one and what's your thoughts on that and what's going on there? Is there any... Yeah. So we've been asking the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for and our flyway for the last four to five years to get that changed. What we what needs to happen is they need to go in and revise the existing uh, pintail harvest model. Mm-hmm. It's been out there since 2010, so it hasn't been revised now for 11 years. Uh, we think it needs to be updated. There has been some additional science that's come out in the last few years. It basically suggests that, you know, hunter harvest is not the problem. It's more of a habitat issue, you know, particularly in the Canadian prairies where they've lost um, a lot of nests due to farming practices. Farming practices have changed up there, and that's hurt the pintail. So um, the service, to their credit, did make this a priority. Um, We're, you know, not so happy with how long it's taken, but... The latest we have heard is that for the 23-24 waterfowl season, the new model will be in place. Now, the new model could come out and it could say, you know what? Hey, we looked at this and we're still only going to get one pintail um, and poor production years and maybe two pintail when they're breeding well and we're not going to give you a third bird. But I will say from what we are hearing internally, um, we do think that there is a decent opportunity that we will be provided with the three bird option. And so if, if that occurs, that would be, you know, a great victory for the California duck hunter. I mean, I know the guys that are out in the rice, they get frustrated because, Mm -hmm. you know, going out and only being able to shoot one or two pintail and then having to stare at a sky full of sprig for the rest of the day, that's a frustrating Mm -hmm. experience. Yeah. We want to keep these guys in the game. We've got to provide more opportunities. So we are, cautiously optimistic that for that 23-24 season hopefully we will get that three bird option okay that's that's great and you know i mean this is just my opinion on it but it's like i've done the same thing like (laughs) it's kind of funny because you're out there hunting and when you know there's a plethora of pintails you're kind of like when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Uh, let's just pass. Let's just pass a little bit because then you then you got to really focus, you know, on not shooting another one. And then go figure the time that you're like, I'm going to wait till the end and end up not getting another opportunity. But, I mean, my thoughts are on it. Like, I, I, I have heard the deal, and I'm not saying I think it's wrong, but I have heard the deal come up about three. And I'm like, you know what, I don't even care. I mean, if it's three, it's three. But, like, just two, just to kind of have that little bit of a backup safety net yeah. window. Like, if you shoot one, you know, you don't have to sit there and stress. Or, or maybe you... Uh, scotch double or something on one shot, you know, it's like you just kind of give yourself yep. a little bit of a safety net there. And so that's, I don't think, yeah, I don't care if it ever goes to three, be honest with you personally, but just two would just be, I think sure. it's fair and, and still low numbered, you know? Yeah, no, I, I get it. The, the one bird is hard to swallow. I mean, that really puts the crimp on you. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I wish between now and then between now and 2023 and 24, we could hopefully get bumped up to two at least mm. because that is provided right now within our frameworks. But, um, you know, I found out, uh, you know, last few days, they are not going to be doing any of the waterfowl breeding surveys again this year because of COVID. Mm. So that includes not only the prairies, but also, you know, um, parts of Canada or all of Canada basically. And then even our own state of California is not going to do our local mallard breeding survey. Mm. It looks like, so to me, that spells status quo on the ring. So I think, you know, unfortunately, we're going to be stuck at one bird for the following season. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll just be, I mean, that's how, what I always try to do is just be honest. And I, if I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but like when I seen that uh, yesterday or the day before, I mean, obviously the comment section, uh, and this was just Facebook, was pretty frustrated. And I, even I read it and I was like, yeah. I, I, and this is just me, you know, I'm not, say anything real negative but my thoughts are like okay hold on and i'm not i'm not putting delta waterfowl down but i'm like i've been flying an airplane for the last year through all this for work and for hunting and whatever and it's like you know we're stacked on airplane in the airplane like cordwood and yeah everyone's got their mask on but then the next moment you gotta stand six feet apart so whatever that's a whole nother topic but it's like how can we do and hustle and bustle everything like we're doing and then we can't even go do a survey because of COVID. You know, it's just, it it is frustrating. Yeah. And I totally get everyone's frustration about that. I think it's fair that people are a little irritated. It's not the end of the world, but it's like, I don't know, guys. Come on, we gotta we gotta move forward at some point. But I'm sure there's a lot more to it than just that. But just as a hunter speaks, you know. <laughs> it's like yeah. A, no, I get it. Well. I mean, the good thing with COVID now winding down, hopefully, you know, next year they'll be able to go back to business as, as usual and yeah. start doing the surveys again. So at least this is just a temporary problem right. and not something long-term. Now, we don't have to stay on this very long, but just real quick, I did uh, be curious to the reasoning behind this, but I seen that the brand seasons uh, went back from 27 to 37 days. So that's a good yeah. deal. That is, I mean, we have a very, you know, it's a small but very dedicated group of hunters that, you know, target those birds mostly in Humboldt and then down in Morro Bay. But as you know, too, you can get them even in Tamales Bay and some other areas um, as well. And um, I believe they use a three bird, or excuse me, a three year running average of their counts. 
And so the, that average, I think went up sufficiently then to allow for the longer season length. So that's good. I mean, most guys, I mean, it's the, the bag limit's not so much the issue. It's the number of days in the field. Right. Mm-hmm. And so getting the extra days, I think is very welcome. And uh, it sounds like a lot of the brand hunters are really happy about that. So yeah. That's good. I still have yet to go hunt for him, but I'm, my goal is to go this year. Yeah, so hopefully we'll that's see. That's definitely a trophy bird. No yeah. doubt about it. I, I went two years ago and unfortunately it was on a day we were up in Humboldt with my daughter and we didn't even see one, oh, but uh, I know, you know, it's all about the tides and when mm-hmm. they're in and if you hit the right days, you can definitely get into them. So hopefully uh, that'll be part of my future. <laughs> yeah. Um, another thing. And again, I said at the beginning, but I'm really, really very happy that this year and I, and I, I did a video. I made the vet hunt video. Um, I don't kind of keep it under wraps still publicly, but I can't wait for everybody to watch it because it was just, I almost felt like I was cheating. Let's put it that way because I know how it is on the junior hunt. I take all these young guys out for several years now and it's just, you're just drooling there. So I almost felt guilty. I was like, this is almost wrong for me to be able to hunt this late in the season, you know, even after the juniors. But I can't lie, I was super thankful for it. And I kind of said a bunch of stuff in the video at the end, but I probably won't put that video out till um, duck season starts. But Don't feel guilty. We've always been authorized 107 days to hunt ducks. But in the balance of the state, you know, the other two zones, we just have never taken those days. And we're now finally utilizing them. So thank God there were some extra days that we could – put forward for that hunt. I mean, every vet deserves that opportunity. I want to, you know, definitely give a plug to Kevin. He really helped develop um, the momentum to get that passed and was very helpful in getting, you know, the dates correct on it. Um, So thank you, Kevin, again, for, you know, all of your input on that. Kevin's a vet too, and he totally gets it. Um, But that's, again, the kind of thing we need. We need input from just, ordinary hunters on how to develop these regulations so we make sure that they're as hunter friendly as possible and provide as much opportunity as possible mm-hmm. real, real quick speaking on that veteran um we still got some work to do we still got some work to do with that vet hunt and the uh the lack of geese or the no goose shooting while we're hunting so i'm going to work that angle with uh, melanie or uh, the next meeting. Yeah. And, and so on that note, I mean, that's one way that we could fix that. And, you know, we need to, I think, gather a little more input from folks on this, but we could take the late goose season, which is typically the third, you know, weekend in February, and then pull it back to the second weekend and hold those two hunts, the vet hunt and the late goose season concurrently. I think there's a lot of support for that. Um, to me, it makes a lot of sense. Um, it also does not interfere with the youth hunt, which, you know, for many years now has occurred one week after the end of the season. And I think that hunt should be kept whole. So we give the kids, mm-hmm. you know, their, their opportunity. Um, but I, I would be definitely personally in favor of, of having those other two hunts, the vet and the late goose season on the same day. I think um, it could go well and, um, it certainly, I mean, if I was a vet out at a refuge watching spec after spec fly by mm-hmm. and not being able to do about that, anything about that, that'd be frustrating. So yeah. I think, you know, providing that opportunity makes all the sense in the world. Well, it kind of, it kind of like, like for me, like, again, 
I I was telling Kevin this. I said I I can't. I'm not going to complain about it because I'm just glad we were having a vet hunt. But at the mm-hmm. same but at the same time, it just didn't really make sense. I mean, I get it that the separation of days and all that stuff. But I'm like, you know, it's like you said. I it it kept me from putting in for stuff in the Sac Valley and up, up farther up north because I'm like. I yeah. can't even shoot a goose anyway, so why drive all the way up there, you know, when I mm-hmm. could just stay home and locally and just shoot ducks here. So that was the only thing. But other than that, I mean, like I said, it's not, you know, end of the world. We're thankful for what we get. No. Oh, absolutely. The great thing, the great thing for the, uh, you know, vets that went on the public areas is they had plenty of space. I mean, there oh, was man. even less pressure than on the youth hunt. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. everybody had more than enough uh, area to, to, to hunt on without interference from others. And I think it was a very high quality hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, if I can, I wanted to briefly mention to you, another change that we're looking to make for next season is we want to take a couple days off of the early Canada goose season. This would be on the back end. So that Tuesday and Wednesday and transfer those days to the opening weekend of the late goose season. And so that way you'd get two, you know, fresh cracks at, at those geese. Um, as you guys know, a lot of those honkers are starting to pair up, you know, later in January and into February, which makes them a little more vulnerable to harvest. So I think if we could provide, you know, um, the option for people to also shoot honkers on that uh, opening weekend of, of the late season would pr- really improve opportunity. So hopefully we can get that changed. Um hmm. The Department of Fish and Wildlife Service is right now asking the Flyway Pacific Flyway Council to uh, allow for that. You know, usually in terms of local goose is- issues, they defer to the state. So I don't think that'll be a problem. And then we brought this up already with our State Fish and Game Commission, and I don't see any problems there. So hopefully that will be in place then for this coming season, this, mm-hmm. the following season, I should, should say because the coming season we already have the regulations mm-hmm. all done this would be for the following year hey hey mark um about that that honker hunt those moving of the days did you brought that up last year even right to them i remember yeah. that yeah so it's ha- taken a little bit of time yeah. there's no doubt about it i'm a little bit frustrated about that but i mean that's the way government processes you know work mm-hmm. it's uh it, it off, oftentimes it takes you know a couple of years to get anything done. So um, the good thing is, again, it's on the right track right now. So I'm pretty confident the following season it'll be in place. Okay. Mm. Well, I don't want to um, push through this too quick. Uh, do you have anything, Kevin, you more on uh, as far as uh, bag limits or anything like that? Or regs? No. Or regs? No. You know, like, like Mark said, they're pretty, they're, kind of status quo from last mm-hmm. year for the most part, you know, mm-hmm. we got a, the brand seasons extended, but, uh, no, I'm, I'm pretty good. It's pretty clear cut and dry to me. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's go into, and I, let me get my notes here out, but let's go into, um, do you want to go into a little bit of the, I don't know if I should say we covered this or not. What, what would you like to cover next? I don't, I don't kind of want to, over dictate this mark 
Uh, well, I assume uh, obviously most of your viewers are uh, refuge hunters. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about some of the refuge hunting statistics out of California? I'd I, love to. I got a summary of those um, in the last week or two. So yes, I would love uh, to talk about that. There's good little bits of information in there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so no surprise here. There were a lot more hunters this past season mm-hmm. for anybody that hunted a public area here you know, than we've had in a while. I think the numbers were up, you know, almost like 10%. Um, the good thing there is it's more hunters out in the field and, you know, we frankly need more hunters in the state. Um, so that's, that's a positive thing. We just need to find a place to put them so we don't have crowding issues and people kicking rocks in the parking lot. Right. That's the the downside of all that. But, um, it looks like the, um, the number of hunters was the second highest in 34 seasons. So that shows, you know, the amount of pressure, um, believe it or not though, the average, even with that amount of hunters, um, was basically the same as the previous year. Our, our refuge hunting average overall was 2.14 birds per hunter. That includes ducks and geese. Um, the year before it was 2.16. So really didn't Hmm. change. That, that surprised me though, because most of the people I talked about, talked to thought that, you know, the season was poorer than the previous year. And when we did our um, survey of our own members, we do a web-based survey and ask that question. I think it was like 70% said that their season was worse, but uh, it looks like the numbers at least show that uh, it was about, about the same. Um, the reservation applications, as you guys know, it's getting to where you got to ding when the lottery lottery literally no to, get, to get a reservation. Uh-huh. They, they were at a record high. It was 1.24 million reservation applications. So what was last year? Really I don't have last year, but the average of the last three years was just 1.04 million. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, it's gone, went up like 25% almost. So yeah, that's significant. And I mean, the reservation odds now are just again, going through the roof. Oh. I mean, good luck yeah. trying to get a resi. Of course at little dry Creek, that's the hardest, one of the hardest mm-hmm. Kern is, is really difficult to Delavan places like that. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah, we, I don't want to probably lead to more frustration, unfortunately. Well, yeah. And, and I don't want to get in the weeds here, but I, there is some questions I would like to ask you on this. Um, mm-hmm. so since you've been hunting the refuge for a long time as well, um, man, where do I start on this? Because so, so for <laughs> instance, I remember, I remember when one of the refuges that I hunt was a, basically a one in two chance that you're going to get drawn. And now I believe I seen, well, I seen last year's numbers if they're out yet, it was either last year's or the year before. And it was like one in eight and it's not even that. I mean, it's I go there because it's close to home, so it's just one of the places I regular. But it's not like oh, this is an incredible place, whatever. But now it's like one in eight, yeah. so I've definitely seen those numbers myself. And <clears throat> the other thing was is like you said, I think um, Little Dry Creek is like one in one fifty. So like you said, it, it it is. It's it's like winning the lottery um, to go to these places. But here, this is where I want to dig into the weeds, and I'm just curious what you think could be how that could be fixed and if there's any chance it could be fixed. And I'm very passionate about this part of it because in my opinion, and you're a lucky dog if this happens to you, but let's just say if you put in for, you know, 
um, let's say October 31st and you put in for several refuges. And if your man lucky is all get out and you draw, the chances are you could, and I've seen guys happen to him, draw three or four in that one day. And my yep. thoughts on that are, okay, good for them. They get to choose. And I've had several friends that happens to quite a bit. And I'm like, how in the world are you that? I mean, I barely get drawn. I don't know how multiple times through the season they'll get their name pulled. And I know it's just a, a lottery system. But my thoughts are, why can they not, if your name gets pulled in the system, I mean, we send people to the moon, <laughs> you'd think you'd be able to create a system like, hey, okay, yes, you did pay for multiple spots, which gives you multiple opportunities. But once your name is pulled, you can't draw these other places, which would then give yeah. more people opportunity. Mm-hmm. And also, I believe it would it would downplay the amount of people, you know, that are going there. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I think with the electronic you know system that they use, that really that wouldn't be of huge cost to the Department of Fish and Wildlife to implement that. So I think it's definitely doable from a cost a technological standpoint. Um, I think the big thing would be we probably would want to pull the, you know, hunters themselves and see where that came out. Um, I personally think it's a good idea. I mean, if it's going to improve, you know, other folks' odds, I think that's a great thing. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, if the few times I've ever gotten multiple reservations, it's nice to have that right. option. But I think the more, you know, important issue is just the lack of people getting reservations and the frustration that's building up within our community. So from that standpoint, it it makes all the sense of the world, but um, maybe that's something, you know, we do our survey every year after the season um, in, uh, you know, March, typically Um, we could put a question out there and just see how our membership feels about it. If that came back, you know, overwhelming majority supported, you know, then I could see our public lands committee then asking the department to make that change and then being solidly behind it. Mm. So we just got to make sure before we make any kind of change like that, that we get a pulse from, you know, the overall uh, uh, vast majority of hunters out there to, to make sure we're on the right path. Now, is that that pulse of the vast majority of hunters, is that just Cal waterfowl people or is that can you do that in an overall based California, uh, whether they're part of it or not? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the web-based survey that we run right now, it's mostly CWA members, but other folks are able to okay. participate in it. Um, you know, I'm trying to remember this last year we had probably, I don't know, 1500 responses on it, which isn't bad. I mean, that's, uh, That's in terms good. of just comparing it, yeah, to our, our membership's about 20,000. So, you know, that's that's a decent turnout. Uh, if you can get a survey that you have that number of respondents with that number of members, uh, I think that's considered decent. So um, that's a positive. But the other thing we could do, too, is talk to Department of Fish and Wildlife and maybe try to ask the survey, you know, or have a survey when people are buying their license, say, getting their duck stamp, um, if they could answer a quick questionnaire on it, that would certainly be more representative mm-hmm. of the population as a whole. And obviously we want to make sure that we're not just doing things that CWA members want, but the hunting community as a whole wants. So yeah. um, we can talk to the department about that too. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, anything, anything else you have, uh, Kevin, on that still? Uh, no, no. I think it's a good idea, but we got to take it to the people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I, I mean, I'm not speaking for everybody, but I've talked to several people about that. And they're like, yeah, because, I mean, we'll, you know, I'll go in there and this is not even, I mean, this is, this is limiting where I, I don't put in for every single place in California, obviously, but I put in for quite a bit. And even though I cut my, cause I'd be traveling hunting so much. So I didn't put in for as many days as I normally do. I mean, it's still, you know, well over 300 bucks, you know, and that's only probably like seven or eight refuges that I'm trying to concentrate on. So yeah, it's, I mean, people are probably, I know people are spending several hundred dollars for the season and they might walk away with five or six resis, you know? So anyways, don't want to beat a dead horse where he talked about it, but anyways, hopefully that's something that can be, um, you know, worked on. See, I, see, I'm lucky cause I got four kids that all hunt and even <laughs> yeah. my wife, she'll hunt every now and then if I'm really nice to her. Yeah. So I get to put in a few extra reservations. But for you're, the family but you're that, paying for it That's been helpful over the years. But oh, you're, yeah. yeah. You didn't even want to know what my reservation oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> yep. I can only imagine because so you know my other friend gets the, drawn, but he's like, hey, I put in my dues. I'm like, oh, I know. I can only imagine what you drop money on that for, you know? Yep. So no, it's, you deserve it when cheap, you get them. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll still do that any day over, you know, getting a private club or a rice blind. I just love the public opportunity and, especially in terms of being able to move around, you know, you're not mm-hmm. stuck at one refuge, you have choices and you get to hunt these very well managed wetland areas. I mean, department of fish and wildlife and the service when they have the funds and the, you know, staff, uh, which they always need more of, but they put out great habitat out on the landscape and, mm-hmm. you know, it's a treat to be able to go out there and utilize these areas. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I just look at it as just, phenomenal experiences for me and my family and mm-hmm. you know you know i'm hunting with kids and it's stuff that we'll remember for the rest of our lives so i'll tell uh, you definitely we're, we're lucky to have that here we are 100 percent. yeah and i mean the memory and that's one thing i'd started doing the videos for is because just all there's i'm re, it's a pain in the rear but later on when you go back and watch them and you see these kids now that it's been five years and they're like grown adults and it's in my own kids yep. taking it. It's like, man, there ain't nothing. I mean, every year goes by, those videos become more precious and that memory, you know, instead of just thinking about it in your exactly. mind, you can go back and watch it. So yeah, we're very, we're very blessed for sure. You, we, we get crabby and we talk about things and whatever, but in, in the we're end, hunters, we like to complain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's too windy. It's not windy enough. It's too much sky cover. Yeah. There's not, yeah, it's always something, but mm-hmm. Guys are too close. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> That's the norm now. Yeah. Yeah. But uh okay, um let's go let's can we talk about the lower Klamath a little bit more detailed? I know we kind of brushed on it real quick. Sure. Um uh, you know, we have very little water up there and it's unfortunately really starting to hurt our flyway in our view. Um that refuge in that area is, as I was touching upon earlier, is very important to our mallard population here. And if that 
dries up and becomes a desert, which is basically on, on its way to doing, it, to me, it's going to be really re- tough for us to ever recover our mallard population here. From So for ju- from just that perspective alone, it needs to be fixed. Of course, it's a huge staging area, you know, for I think 80% of the entire Pacific Flyway uh, stages there. Um, that's very important. Um, the hunting opportunities that historically were provided there were very important as well. I mean, as you guys know, that whole area was a hunter-based in, uh, economy, basically. I mean, all the motels, gas stations, restaurants depended on that hunting seasonally. And to see that kind of dry up has been really sad. Uh, so, you know, my heart goes out to the, the local uh, businesses up there, what they've had to deal with. Um, there's been, you know, a lot of different suggestions as to how to fix the Klamath water issue. What CWA is trying to focus on are solutions that have a lot of consensus behind them and don't rob Peter to pay Paul. We're not trying to go out and snatch water from another water user um, and then give it, you know, over to the refuge. We're looking for voluntary incentive-based ways, consensus-based ways to solve this problem. So our big uh, focus right now is to try to secure long-term water rights from some landowners up in the upper Klamath Lake Basin. The great thing is, is the, the water rights there, uh, these are not project water rights. So by those being transferred to the refuge, hopefully um, it's not going to affect then negatively the farmers who are very close partners of ours up there. I mean, they frankly help to get water to the refuge year in and year out. And as you guys probably know, I mean, half of the the food resources that waterfowl use up in that basin and also down in say the Sacramento Valley comes from agriculture. I mean, so one of the reasons we have as healthy a waterfowl populations is because of farming and we want to make sure we do everything to maintain that and uh, keep those partnerships with farmers good. So um, the cost of these water rights, I mean, they're nothing to sneeze at it. You know, total, what we're looking at would be about $50 million, but um, the federal government, frankly, has the resources to do it, and it would provide reliable water that the refuge could call upon at any time to flood up, and that's the important thing. It's not just the the, um, quantity of water. It's being able to use that water when you need it most, mm-hmm. um, and so these water rights really provide that kind of security and that reliability. Um, you know, another thing that we would certainly like to see is a comprehensive water sharing agreement. There was an agreement called the Klamath Basin Restoration Agreement a few years ago that had the consensus of you know all of the different stakeholders basically up in the basin. Um, unfortunately, Congress ended up not signing on to that and funding it, but that agreement would have provided water, sufficient water to the refuge in nine out of 10 water years. It would have finally given the refuge a, a priority under the Klamath Reclamation Act. So it would have been a purpose, the, the, the refuge would have been a purpose of the water project up there and uh, would have done a number of other things to benefit the refuge. So unfortunately, again, that collapsed, but there are efforts to kind of revive that. And we've been working with other stakeholders up in the basin to try to get some consensus behind a new agreement. So hopefully that 
eventually will be uh, put into place, and um, that will, again, benefit the refuge in the long term if it's adopted. Mm. That's that, that's uh, <laughs> The more that you talk about it and I hear about it, the more it's kind of like, man, how are we going to make it without that getting fixed? I mean, it almost sounds mm-hmm. like if we don't get that fixed, we're a, we're a big creek. You know? I would say it's it's going to definitely affect the timing of our migrations down here in the valley. I mean, some hunters maybe even look at this as beneficial because you're getting this flyover of the basin, right? I mean, you're now seeing the specks come down in the Sacramento Valley as mm-hmm. early, you know, as we've ever seen them. And so, obviously, for people then hunting down here around opening day, that's that's beneficial. But the, the real fear is, is again, the mallard, what's going to do the California mallard. But also, if in the springtime there is not habitat there sufficient to feed those birds when they're migrating back up to their breeding grounds in, say, the Dakotas or uh, Canada or Alaska, that could then affect their reproduction over the long term. And what you could see is then lower waterfowl populations. I mean, we got to return these birds to their breeding grounds in good shape. Mm-hmm. And if they arrive in poor shape, they're just not going to be very productive. And I think that's the real threat with the Klamath Basin going dry. Mm. Wow. Well, me and, uh, me and Kevin will fight tooth and nail for that. Cause we're, we're mallard guys. <laughs> no, <laughs> he said he's not yep. a mallard purist, but no, but in, in all honestly though, I mean, that's a, that's an, I mean, I'm assuming that, the more support that we can give you guys, the better. Cause I'm, I kind of wonder, you know, as far as memberships go, you know, um, I mean, how big of a, can you tell the listeners how big of an impact that does have? I mean, how, how big of an impact does that really have as far as be, people being part of Cal waterfowl and ducks unlimited and Delta waterfowl? Well, it's huge. I mean, when I go before, say, the state legislature, you know, I'm able to say I represent 20,000, you know, members. That carries some weight. If I went up there and I said, well, I only represent a couple hundred people, they're not going to listen to me. So the more members we have, the better. The more resources we have, the more we can put towards lobbying and education on this issue. Um, We have been very successful recently of reaching out to um, some donors who are very interested in the water rights proposal and have raised quite a bit of money to help initially start buying the water rights and getting that process going. So uh, that's been been great. Now, CWA, there's no way that we can cover that $50 million. That's not going to happen. But we can, you know, kickstart the process and then what, again, hopefully – the federal government will come in and pay for the vast majority of it. We are also asking the state legislature to provide a state cost share because even though this is a federal refuge, it has implications for state waterfowl management up and down California. And so we believe that the state should pony up some funds as well. And I think the legislature, you know, ultimately will agree to do that. So um, there's some bond measures that are being kicked around the legislature right now. Um, that um, would fund a variety of like climate change, water projects, things like that. These are bonds that would then have to be approved by the voters before they were, you know, ultimately um, final. 
right? Um, we're hopeful that we can get language in there to provide Klamath water rights uh, funding eligibility, and then hopefully once they appear on the ballot, the, the voters will vote for them and we get the money. Okay. Mark, um, I'm a little high now here. Can you, can you um, enlighten us on the, the purchase that CWA did make on that 4,000 acre feet of water, I believe it was? But there was a purchase, wasn't there, of water for OCW? You're, you're, yeah. Uh, did you get that, Mark? Because you're kind of cutting out, uh, Kevin. Sorry. I think I know what you're referring to. It's the 4,500 acre feet is the initial start of the water purchase, water rights purchase. Um, and that would, um, you know, help to make sure that this year, if it, if it goes through, you know, we don't have as bad of a botulism die off. It would help particularly our molting and our breeding birds up on the refuge. Um, that's when the water would be delivered. So that is in progress. The only kicker on that though, is now, um, if, the federal government comes back and says that the water level in Upper Klamath level, uh, Upper Klamath Lake is not high enough, then that transfer would not be fully approved. So, you know, what, all, what governs all of what you can do up there are these biological opinions that are meant to protect the uh, salmon that are in the Klamath River and then some mm-hmm. sucker fish that are in Upper Klamath Lake. So it all, everything that we do has to be consistent with those biological opinions. That may be mm. difficult this year because the drought condition up there is horrible. I mean, mm-hmm. I saw the allocation uh, that the Klamath farmers are expecting this year. It's something like 40,000 acre feet. You know, I'm probably a little bit off on that. Normally they would get, you know, uh, their full allocations like 400,000 acre feet. Wow. So we're talking a 90% decline in the availability of water for farmers. So it just shows you how little water is up there right now and how bad the drought is. So because of that, you know, this water rights um, purchase and um, approval may have to then get kicked to the following year. Uh, We'll see. I think we'll, you know, find out here shortly whether whether the water rights uh, uh, proposal goes through. But again, it's all, subject to what the biological opinions say and we got to meet those requirements first okay okay so that so the, yeah so you're saying basically it's not even guaranteed this year that 4500 yeah yeah but so for, for folks that have been already donated funds for that water rights purchase it still mm-hmm. will be used for that water rights purchase we would just delay it then by a year so yeah, and the yeah. money will not be diverted and used for anything else. The only thing that it can be used for is to purchase these long-term water rights. So it's just a timing issue. Okay. 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 Um, got a, got a question, Mark, about Thule Lake, um, about a hunting opportunity, opportunity they used to have there. You probably remember, I think it was after December 15th. You can go out, I think it was after December 15th on Wednesdays and Saturdays, you can shoot after the one o'clock end date or end time. You remember that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, they, they recently, I think it was last year, maybe it started two years ago. They, they uh, nixed that program. Is there a way we could fight to get that back? 
Um, the best way to do that, I, I talked to Greg Austin, the manager up there, who's a great guy. Um, God, you know, I feel for him all the challenges he's got, given how bad, again, the water situation is this year. But he let me know that there will be a hunt program meeting this year via Zoom. So, um, you know, I would check their website, find out when that is, and then provide that input at the, uh, the hunt program meeting. That's probably the best way to kind of kickstart that. Okay. Kevin, I'm just curious that you bring that up. Um, I don't have a ton of experience up there, but um, I'm assuming from my little bit of exposure up there later in the season, I mean, is that really worth it before the fact of, and I'm just asking a question, a you know, innocent yeah. question. Is it really worth it because it's cold and how much ice is up there? I mean, is that really going to? Yeah, well, I mean, I can't say it was effective 100% of the time, but, you know, initially the first couple weeks of it, it, it worked pretty well. And it's a timing thing up there too, you know, mm -hmm. with the weather. I mean, yeah. you could have some more, some, some cold trends or some warm ups and, and birds yeah. are still there, you know, and, yeah, true. and there's always, wow. right. Well, I mean, like, it's like just reverse, mi like reverse migrating, like oh, if yeah. it warms up, they go back up there. Is that what you're saying? There there, there are some years up there, you know, it's sporadic, but they'll have a thaw and a lot of birds from the valley will go right back up in the mm. face. And, and that's, you know, it's a timing issue, but when that happens, the hunting can be red hot. Mm. So yeah, it sounds yeah. like, you know, this last couple of years, it really didn't happen. But I remember, you know, back in the early 2000s, that occurred, you know, quite frequently. And mm. folks that kind of stuck it out up there did really well. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was, it was an opportunity, you know, and it, it, and it's gone now. So it was just, you know, just trying to get stuff like that back. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't, you know? I wasn't disagreeing with that. I was just curious. Cause I'm thinking yeah, like, yeah. I, I know, Again, like you said, it just depends on the weather, obviously. Because I mean, it can free, it can be frozen half an inch thick ice, you know, November first sometimes. So yeah, I guess yeah. like you said, weather dependent though. So well, um, I'm uh, I can't lie, I I you answered a ton of questions I have. Was there anything specific, Mark, that you were kind of wanting to go over as well? I don't want to leave anything out of this. I know we can't cover everything, but. Um, I, going back to the mallards, um, one thing to note was the mallard take was the second lowest in the last 34 seasons. Wow. And the average mallard per hunter on the refuges was the lowest ever in, in the 34 mm. years. Ouch. So Ouch. that tells you something again of the dire straits that our mallard populations are in right now. I mean, it really uh, is an indication that we've got an issue. It's just, you know, how do we solve that? And again, my personal view is we need to just get more and better breeding habitat out on the landscape. I think that will definitely help. That's, um, that's heartbreaking. Just a few, uh, I'll yeah. just mention a few refuge-specific details. Maybe I'll quiz you guys on this one. Um, which refuge do you think um, had the most hunters? What do you think is the most popular refuge? Gray Lodge. That's right. Oh. Yep. 11, Ooh, not even a refuge. I believe guys. it's 11,000. <laughs> yep. Hunters use that refuge. Hmm. Um, what do you think is the highest number of waterfowl harvested? By what do you mean, an individual? No, or oh, refuge wise? Which, which refuge, refuge harvests the most? Yeah. Mm. Mm. 
I'm, I'll, I'll, I gotta, I gotta pick. And yeah, my, go, go for it. Go but now my brain, hold on, give me a second. I'm trying to remember the name of it because it's close to home. But I'm, uh, give me a second. It's. it's I'm gonna say YOLO. I'm gonna say YOLO. I'm gonna say in the Grasslands Valley, but my my brain is not thinking of the name of it because I never go there. But oh my goodness. Yolo's up there. Are you thinking of? Uh, well, this isn't really grasslands. You may be thinking of Merce, uh, Excuse me, Mendota. Yeah, I was gonna say Mendota. Mendota's huge. Mendota's number three, actually. Oh, okay. But no, it, it, number one is Gray Lodge again. Gray Lodge wow. again, okay. and that really shows how that Gray Lodge. I got a special place in my heart for that. That's the first place I ever killed my uh, first mallard. Um, so that was cool. Um, and I've never actually, hunted. I've never I, hunted there. Worked, You've never hunted. Never there. hunted it there. It can be good at times, definitely. And you call it's, yourself it's a, a big refuge. <laughs> it's a big refuge, so you got a lot of options, yeah. places to go. It's also for guys that love free roam. I mean, basically the entire place is free roam, so that's nice as well. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of good habitat work has been done in the last five to seven years, uh-huh. um, and I'm proud to say CWA has helped with a lot of that. And it's really brought a lot more food on that refuge. And I think that's really helped out the hunting. Um, they've had some really good refuge managers there as well. Tim Hermanson, who used to hunt or excuse me, manage uh, upper Butte basin. He is now the new gray lodge manager. So he'll, um, be, uh, overseeing that area. Um, but the, the department's had some really good people running that area. Andy Atkinson ran it for years and did a great job as well. So, um, it's good. I mean, it's, that's, that's a refuge that most days, you know, you can walk on and, you know, the, uh, kicking in rocks in the parking lot's not such the issue. So it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a good, good resource to have up there locally, particularly in the Sacramento Valley where we have this massive hunter pressure issue going on. Um, so it's, it's nice that we have a refuge that you can actually get on reliably. Uh, and so here, here's the other last thing I'll say about Gray Lodge. Believe it or not, too, it was number three in Mallards. Really? No, no, number yeah. one was, of course, Dry Creek, um, which probably no surprise there. Mm-mm. Number two, believe it or not, was uh, Mendota. But number mm-hmm. three is Gray Lodge. So, wow. I mean, it's shooting quality birds, too. Uh, it's also number one in Widgeon, uh, which I would have thought. Gray Lodge God, is? Gray Lodge is number one in Widgeon. Uh-huh. I, I would have thought for the amount of Widgeon I killed at YOLO this year that that would have been number one, but it did Yolo is actually number two in Widgeon statewide. Um, but no, really shows that Gray Lodge, you know, not only is it accessible, but it provides some pretty darn good hunting at times. So that's one you might want to check out. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I actually was invited there for opening day last year, but I already had plans. And then the the he's a really cool guy. They've been following along for a while. And now we've kind of become friends with him and his son. And him and his son um, shot two limits of big birds, and then they um, he shot a, a banded, I believe it was a banded pintail drake, so that was pretty cool. But, yeah, I mean, it looks like cool habitat from the pictures I've seen. I just, I mean, there's so many places you can get, it's just hard to, like, spread out. And I, it's funny because the last, I'm going to say four years, before four years ago, you know, I, Travis was my mentor. He was a close friend. He's older enough, like an older brother to me. And we always went to the same refuge, always the same refuge for years. And then finally I was like, 
I need to try something else, you know, get out of my comfort zone. Because obviously it's a comfort thing, right? Like you you don't know the place, you don't know the rules, the regs, because people are constantly asking us on YouTube, social media, yeah. oh, you need to do videos on this. I'm like, I can't really do that. I'm not really going to do that. Like I can be general, <laughs> but I'm not going to go over every refuge and tell you I do it. You know, do your research, go to the refuge. You can, it tells you what time to get there, what time to check in, blah, blah. But it's like I finally got out and started going other places. Because honest to God, four years ago, before that, I had never really left the grasslands, which is hard to think about now. I'm like, well, no wonder I kill a whole lot more ducks than I used to because now I'm going all over the place. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, yeah I, I try to encourage you guys listening. Just get out of your comfort zone. You know what? <clears throat> I think our thing is, as as hunters, and I won't just say men, but men and women that are hunting, our mindset is, well, you know, I'm very limited on my time. And I want to make the most of it when I can hunt. And I totally understand that. But at the same time, you got to pay your dues. Try somewhere else. You may get skunked. You may not even get to hunt very long. But when you learn about it, you may open up yourself and be so much more successful that I believe it's totally worth doing it. It just, you just got to take your, you're going to lose some days, you know, you're going to win some, lose some. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. Especially yeah. here in California. Mm-hmm. I think you got to get out of your comfort zone here. It's, yeah. you know, you got to, it's just too tough to stay in one spot. Yeah, totally agree on that. I mean, I try to make it, you know, every year that where I'm going to try at least four or five new ponds or refuges that I have not hunted before. And it, it may be a complete, you know, strikeout or I just fumbling around there. Don't you know get anything, but at least you learn more. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, you, it, it provides you then in the future with options and it's always good to have options. You got to have not just the plan A and B, but the plan C and D too. Right. Yeah. For, We're again, at, given the amount of pressure these refuges get. Yeah. So good, good learning experience. We're going to have to get old Kevin out on the refuge sometime. Oh yeah. <laughs> get out of your boat. You guys have my number. Walk with. 45 pounds of decoys on our backs. <laughs> uh, I'm, just I, I'm game. Hey, yeah. you guys have my number. All right. Um, um, speaking of, speaking of refuges guys, um, Mark, that question was in the, um, end of the year CWA survey regarding the three and a half inch, um, shell on refuges, you know, trying to maybe get a better hunter experience. Cause we know the hunter experience at the refuge was kind of low or the, the morale or, you know, um, is that going to catch any traction maybe, or did it, what were the end results of that? Do you know, do you have that? Yeah. I'm just, just off the top of my head. I don't think that there was a clear, you know, showing of support for it. It it may have been like a slight majority in favor of it, but it wasn't one of those where we get 70 to 80% saying, yeah, let's do it. So Um, we, Okay. So if it's not really drastic or overwhelming, we just kind of, yeah, let to it me, ride. To me, it's, it's, it's the disturbance issue. You know, it's, oh, yeah. there's been other clubs that have gone to 20 gauge, you know, just to keep the level of noise down. But if you're sitting there shooting three and a half inch howitzers out, I mean, I can hear you from miles away and that the birds can also hear you. And, you know, the more we could reduce that disturbance, I think that would help with the quality of hunting. But that said, I mean, I know a lot of guys like to use them and particularly, uh, you know, use them when they're out goose hunting. I totally get it. Um, There just needs to be a good balance with it. 
Um, as you guys know, I mean, they, the refuges did many years ago ban using 10 gauges too. So they have put restrictions on what equipment you can use out there. Um, but this would probably be something to have, again, more of a uh, get more feedback from other people in the hunting community on it. I, I certainly wouldn't want to go up and ask for a change unless I knew that, you know, the vast majority of the public area hunters wanted it. So yeah. we just got to make sure there's consensus there. See, I'm surprised that, I mean, you didn't, you said you didn't really know the numbers off the top of your head, but I'd be so shocked that that wouldn't be 60, 70%. Because I'm just thinking of the, all the people I know. It's like, I don't feel like I know hardly anybody that uses three and a half. But, I I, I'm, but maybe it's where I'm hunting and, you know, who I'm around. I don't know. But it's just like in my brain, and I don't. It's whatever people use what they use, but it's like, man, I don't, I don't see how I would, how I would ever need that. But I do, I do see, like you said about the geese, people feel more comfortable with that, and that's, it is what it is. I just kind of think sometimes, and and I don't, don't get ruffled feathers at me, anybody that uses three and a half. <laughs> but my thoughts are, you know, at the same time, it's like, um, get them closer. Well, yeah, I mean that, and um, you know, the stuff. I don't know. It, it, I mean it. They ain't, it's putting a damage on your arm. I'll tell you that. You shoot those, you, you know you're shooting them, that's for sure. But, yeah, I don't um, know. And, or if you're in a blind and you don't have earplugs in, your, your hearing's going to definitely uh, be mm-hmm. affected by that, too. Well, and I, so, yeah. I wonder how many, I'm, uh, who knows, nobody knows this number unless you did a survey, but I'm just kind of wondering, like, I wonder if how many of them are people using three and a halfs that just don't know any better. You know, like maybe they're newer hunters or they're, been hunting five years less and just don't know, you know, like as far as knowledge wise goes, you know, kind of makes you wonder a little bit, mm-hmm. but yeah, I guess people like yeah. options too. You know, people want to know, Hey, maybe I don't do that, but if I want to, I can. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. True. I mean, but you just look historically at like, like Mark was saying, I mean, sub gauges are popular. Mm-hmm. Look at these clubs, a lot of great clubs don't have that stuff, you know, won't yeah. allow it. Right. And they have three days a week and they cut you, cut you off at a, you know, a lot of them a certain time. Right. I mean, it's better quality of hunting. It's almost like, why would we in, incorporate uh, like club practices right onto a public area? Like mm-hmm. we know it works on private. Why wouldn't we try to incorporate that same style on a public area? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what club allows three and a half, you know, I'm, I'm sure there is, I mean, but I'm talking, you know, quality stuff. So it just kind of boggles my mind sometimes, you know, we got these great, great places do these practices, but they sit, they fail to really catch traction on public areas for some reason. I'm surprised. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think the biggest thing was, is like you said, um, Mark is the fact that the birds hear it too, you know, and I do know that the clubs that do use the 20 gauges, those guys can barely hear each other. They'll be, they won't be that far from each other and they can barely hear each other shoot. So the birds ain't hearing as good either, which yeah. means they'll come. So there's, yeah. Anyways. I guess I'm assuming most people would want to work birds in. And, you know, that's a lot of the joy of hunting is mm-hmm. being able to communicate with that bird and to get them coming in. But mm-hmm. if they're so skittish because they're hearing shots miles away, I mean, that's, Obviously, you're not going to have as much of an opportunity to do that. Yep. But um, the good thing is, again, I mean, we do have these hunt program meetings. 
um, which, you know, our committee, actually our CWA committee and staff, we work to get a law passed that requires the state to have these public hunt program outreach meetings. So um, the good thing is that they are available now. We just got to make sure we get enough folks, you know, using them and providing input. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the last few years of the, the program or the meetings that I've been at, there's been quite a few hunters. Hopefully that'll increase because I think the more input, the better. And that way um, they can make sure that whatever change they are going to make to these programs, that it represents the, what the vast majority of the hunters want. Mm-hmm. Do you have any more numbers that you wanted to share as far as birds and refuges? Those um, are kind of interesting to hear. One I'll, I'll just say on uh, average uh, number of birds, the top three, um, and probably some of these won't be as much a surprise to you, but Joyce Island was number one with a 3.03 average. Uh, let's see. Delavan was number two with a 2.89 average. And Gadwall was number three with a 2.87 hmm. So those are always, you know, typically uh, refuges that, you know, shoot pretty well, shoot high averages. So um, no surprise really there. But um, the good thing is, I mean, gosh, 2.8 to 3.0, I mean, that's that's getting up there. That's and, incredible. You know, yeah, I mean, you consider these are public areas. And then, the again, the number of hunters now using these areas, I mean, to have that average be that high, is is pretty remarkable Mm -hmm. so it it shows that it shows that those areas too are being managed the right way and um you know people are going home with a lot of birds which is good Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely um Uh, um, go ahead oh real quick a speaking of refuges and uh, the covid practice this year mark was was the or last year was uh, mm-hmm. one ref- i think one refuge you can go yeah. to i think and check in now now i know that was that was a big topic of maybe going back to the old system of i think where you can go to multiple try to get a number where where's that at right now cuz i think it was yeah yeah enlighten us this came, on- and this came yeah this has come up at the state, uh, the Sacramento uh, National Wildlife Complex hunt program meeting it was discussed and some other conversations we've had. I don't think the feds or the state have made any final determinations on that. I mean, we do know that, you know, the state plans as a whole to reopen and should be recovered from COVID for the most part by, I think it's July 1st, right? June June 15th. So hopefully then that will allow for um, things to get back to normal with the reservation procedures for this coming season. But there still may be folks that like that, you know, only one lottery uh, requirement. And so I, I could see even if there are no COVID issues, them possibly putting some new restrictions on how many refugees you can put in. Or um, My guess is we will know all of this, though, by probably late August, early September. I mean, they've got to let the hunters know before the reservation applications hit the street, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. if people are going to start applying, they need to know what the rules are yeah. then for accessing the refuge. So um, by that time, we should have a final answer on that. I, okay. I, I personally liked it where you were you couldn't do that because I'm like, if you want to hunt a refuge, then hunt that and put in for that. You know, don't bounce around in three places. And I, I felt like... Um, when I was at the refuges that a lot of people just, and this is just coming from people I was around saying, Hey, I like it. Cause that's how they said, that's how it used to be. 
Then they changed mm-hmm. it to where you could go to three places and put in for lottery. And then because of COVID last year, they changed it. And I, I don't know. I, I, I'd, just be, I'd love to know the numbers on that, on a vote on who wants it to keep it that way and who doesn't. That would be a huge um, thing that I think would be really neat to see that. Because, I don't yeah. know. I think that was a question, wasn't it, Mark, on that uh, CWA survey? It was, and again, I can't recall what the numbers were exactly, but I yeah. believe um, there I was think. support. There was a majority that wanted to keep it at one. Yes, yeah. there was. Okay, I, but yeah. it, but again, like the other question, it wasn't a seventy to eighty percent. It was mm. more like fifty to hmm. maybe fifty-five percent, something like that. Yeah. Wow. Hmm, interesting. But it but it was it was but it was a majority, correct? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would I would have guessed that, but wasn't sure. Okay. Well, um, I know this. I I feel if you're available again, Mark, I think that there's a lot more things that we could stir up and write down and topics we can go mm-hmm. over, especially as the season progresses. If it's something that you're willing and able to do later on, I really appreciate you coming on, and I appreciate you, Kevin, Absolutely. for making the contact to get Mark on here. So I appreciate both of you guys for making this ha- happen and taking time out of your day for myself and for the listeners. I, I know everybody's going to appreciate it um, because some of the topics that we covered is not just California. Like you said, it, I mean, it impacts, it can impact the whole Pacific flyway too. So that affects a lot of hunters. So mm-hmm. no, ha- happy to do it. Um, Titus and, um, you know, one of the other things that we might want to cover in, in the future is what's going on at the state capitol. There's a lot of hunting-related and gun-related legislation mm-hmm. down there. Um, you know, I would assume that some of your uh, listeners would want to get an update there. So yes, I'm definitely happy to come back on and whatever you guys want to talk about, uh, let's do it. Okay. Well, thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Mark. And Thank you, everybody, again, for the support that you guys give to this podcast. And I hope you guys enjoyed this one. If you have um, any questions or anything, you guys can always feel free to email uh, us at Podcast at gmail.com. And uh, do us a favor and go give us a rating review on iTunes if you listen on, listen on there. And we'll see you guys on the next one. <laughs>